Welcome to the Victory Baptist Church Sermon Podcast, where we take the Word of God and preach a timely message from the pulpit of Victory Baptist Church of Fallon, Nevada. So we're recording this afternoon, and we're going to continue that study, Worshiping Through Your Work, Connecting Sunday Worship with Monday Work. This is our last message in the series, and this is Showing Common Grace in the Workplace. Uh, Last week, we really kind of focused on both the common good, and then we ended talking about this doctrine of common grace. Uh, An author by the name of, uh, a speaker by the name of Scott Kaufman said this, Common grace helps us to acknowledge that there are times to embrace culture warmly and times to be in stark opposition to it. And the only durable, biblical way to do both is to see culture through the lens of common grace. And there's definitely going to be things that we disagree with in our culture. There's definitely uh, some things that we can embrace and we can be behind it, but then there's some that we should be in stark contra- uh, contrast to it. But it does not change the fact that we, can, that we have to live with common grace towards both things. Um, so if you will take your Bibles, turn to Titus chapter 3. We'll be there in just a, just a minute. But last week, We talked about working for the common good and showing common grace to people. I want to build on the doctrine of common grace. Uh, If you remember when we were talking about essential doctrines, uh, we said that essential doctrine is always going to point to the gospel. I believe that the doctrine of common grace points directly to Calvary as it is a tool to point people towards saving grace. Common grace is what God gives to all people and what God wants us to give towards all people to point them to saving grace, which is what we came to know when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, for by grace are you saved through faith. All right, and so it's that saving grace that we want people to see. And, um, you know, earlier uh, when we were in church, I, I said, well, remember all essential doctrines going to point to, and somebody said, God. Well, no, because the gospel is the central focus that God has for the doctrine. Because there's a lot of people that have a doctrine about God, but they don't know the God of the Bible. So the distinction is, is that when every essential doctrine is focused on the gospel, then we can look at the gospel as the central focus and we can see how that uh, started from the very beginning. When Adam and Eve fell, we see the gospel and we can see how it goes all the way to the end and showing God's grace all the way until the final amen. Um, One time during our Get to Know Victory class, someone asked an important question. When it comes to respecting people and places of authority, the statement was made that I understand that God wants us to pray for our president and others in authority, but I have a really hard time with respecting them because of the decisions that they make. Why should I respect them? So he brought up a couple of points that will help us, and that is pictured by common grace that we're going to look at today. First of all, Every person is created in the image of who? Yeah, we are all created in the image of God. Those who are in politics 
Uh, it, it, it doesn't matter what side of the aisle they're on. They're still created in the image of God. It doesn't matter the color of our skin. It doesn't matter. Uh, there should be no prejudice. There should be no racism, especially within the house of God. Yet, so many times, it has been what has propelled racism and prejudice and division has been the very house of God. I think this is why we have to be very careful even uh, to use the pulpit to project or push anything politically from the pulpit. I think that we, we shouldn't do that. The reason why is because our core purpose as a church is to live the gospel and to show the gospel. Yes, we're going to disagree with people politically, but that's not a place for the pulpit. Yes, uh, we even talked about this last week. I think that Christians do need to be involved in politics. I believe that they need to be involved in getting into uh, being in the government and to being lawyers and things like that. But, you know, one of my soapbox issues is, is that the church failed because the church... As soon as prayer was pulled out of the public school, the church abandoned the public school. And then we sit there and wonder why our nation is in the way it is. And then no young person is going to want to go into uh, politics or to be a lawyer when constantly in front of uh, people, preachers will get up and say, well, all politics are liars, all lawyers are liars. Why would, why would anybody want to join into any of those things if that's what's being preached from the pulpit? The pulpit should not be a place where we take a political stance. It should be where we preach the word of God. Now, should we take a stance against racism? Absolutely. Should we take a, a, a stance against prejudice, uh, prejudice? Yes, absolutely we should. And we should be the very people who go out into this world and fight against those things. The very point demands that we should show respect to all people. Because every person is created in the image of God. They've been given the breath of life. They have a body, soul, and spirit. But because of Adam and Eve's decision to rebel, it means that all people are destined to be sinners. This gives us the second reason why we should respect all men. Second, all people are sinners. And the only difference between a saved person and a lost person is we have tasted the saving grace of God. With that in mind, then, we have to remember who we were in the past and what God saved us from. And if God can do that in us, he can do that in others. I'm afraid too many times as the church that we continue to allow people's past to color what we think of them now that they know Jesus Christ is their Savior. The Bible says, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. When a person comes to know Christ as their Savior, their past is gone. Is the consequence still there? Sure it is. But we cannot continue to judge them on past things if they've come to know Christ as their Savior. Now, will it take time for them to build trust with you? Absolutely. I recently was talking to somebody and they said, you know, I don't think I'll ever be able to be used the way I think God wants me to be used because people still judge me based on my past and they won't trust me because of my past. And I said, this is a problem. You cannot live in your past. As we get ready for our next uh, uh, series that we're going to be going to, and I'm excited about next, uh, next week getting into a new series, we're going to be looking at um, Hidden Heroes, Unveiling the Women of Christ's Lineage. And it's going to be amazing. Why? Because three of the five women in Jesus' uh, um, uh, genealogy that's mentioned all had a past. And they were not very good pasts. 
And God redeemed them from their past, just as he's redeemed other people from their past. Titus 3, 1 through 4, you know, this is where we're going to look right now. Uh, the, the very fact is, how can we judge other people on their past when we have our own past? We really can't. Um, Titus 3, 1 through 4, put them in mind to be subject to principalities and to powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. If you remember kind of the background behind uh, Titus, we studied that a few years ago. They're on the island of Crete. The Cretans, they were known as people that could not be conquered. Uh, they might be conquered, but they would never follow the political government of anything. They were conquered by Greek, uh, uh, the, uh, by Greece. Uh, the Greeks tried to come in and tell the Cretans what they were going to do, and they ended up leaving the Isle of Crete being influenced by the Cretans rather than the Cretans being influenced by the Greeks. And then Rome comes along, defeats the Greeks, and comes in and tries to settle down the island of Crete, and nobody wants to obey the government. But then you come to Acts chapter 2 at the day of Pentecost, and something's going to change in the Isle of Crete. You come to Acts chapter 2, uh, the gospel is being preached, the men hear the gospel in their own language, they receive Christ, and then they go back. Well, it says in the list of people that they had there, and there were some Cretans there. There was people from Crete that were there. And so they go back to the island, and God begins to change the island. God begins to change that place. The, the uh, people of Crete are coming to know Christ as their Savior. Uh, Paul is sending Titus there to minister to them. But what happens? You have the religious zealots, the, the Judaizers that come in, and they're almost turning the hearts of the Cretans who have come to know Christ as their Savior back to where they were, where they didn't want anybody to rule or govern over them because of all the things that the Jews were trying to add to salvation. When salvation gave them freedom, the legalism put them back as slaves. So Paul says, Titus, this is what I need you to teach them. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and to powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. He says, you need to listen to those who have been put in authority over us. Here's the thing. It does not matter who gets elected on election day. Whoever gets elected is God's appointed person for our country. Is it important for us to go vote? I think we should still go vote. We have the right to. We have the freedom to. But ultimately, we also have to realize that whoever's in power, whether it's a governor or whether it's a councilman or a senator or a president or whatever it is, is appointed by God. And if they're appointed by God, we still have a responsibility to obey. Now, uh, we know that uh, in, I believe it's in Romans, where, uh, or no, it's in Acts, where they're being told, well, you can't preach the gospel. What do they tell them? Well, we have to obey God rather than man. So, yes, there are times that we have to stand up against those things, but the reality is he goes on to tell us how we're supposed to live in Titus chapter 2, in ch ch chapter 3. He says, so be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man. And this is one of the reasons why I think we have to be so careful as Christians how we talk about our government. You know, again, I, I, I grew up listening to Rush Limbaugh. And I believe that he had such a large influence on Christian America. That's one of the reasons why we grumble and gripe and complain about everything our government does when we should not be speaking evil of any man. 
to speak evil of no man, to, uh, to be no brawlers. But what does he tell us to be? To be gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. Why? Because of our past. Because when we come to verse number three, for we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceiving, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. He says, hey, before you get on to how the government's doing things in your country in Crete, you better look back what you once were. This is why I want you to pray for all these people because they're just like you were in your past. But what changed? But after that, the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, towards man appeared. So if God showed us common grace by his kindness and love towards us, shouldn't we also show common grace to others? So today, we're going to look at five ways to show common grace in the workplace in really every part of our lives. Five ways to show common grace in the workplace and every other part of our lives. Number one, common grace as a neighbor. Common grace as a neighbor. Matthew 22, 37 through 39. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Why does God want us to love him? He wants us to be a reflection of the love that he had towards us. In 1 John uh, chapter 4, it says, We love him because he first loved us. This is what our Christian life is completely about, is loving God. Because when we love God like we're supposed to, guess what? We're going to love people like we're supposed to. We're going to love our neighbors like we are supposed to. Now, it is almost an impossible command to keep, but it's a command that was repeated from the Old Testament and the New Testament by Jesus Christ. It's one of the commands that we'll look at as we get into next year when we look at the commands of Christ. Because this is the central, most important command for us to follow when it comes to all the other commands of Christ, because when we say, hey, God, I'm doing what I'm doing because I love you, rather than trying to prove my love to you, I'm doing it because I love you, it makes a big difference in how we serve and what we do. Because if we're doing things out of love, then it becomes a joy to obey. It becomes a joy to uh, serve. It becomes a joy to give sacrifice because we're doing it out of a love for the person who loved us. But if we're not doing it out of love, it becomes a chore. It becomes a dread. It becomes just uh, something that we feel like we're obligated to do. We shouldn't even come. You know, if we're coming to church because we feel like we're obligated to, you might as well have stayed home. Because if your heart when you come to church is, well, I don't really want to be here, but I have to. There's no reason for you to be here. When we exit the church and we go about our business for the rest of the week, be that in the workplace or in retirement or in our homes, we tend to compartmentalize things in our mind. We don't think about how everything we do should be connected with these two great commands. Again, we talked a little bit about compartmentalization last week. Here's the thing. This is the problem. This is why we preach through this series is because we tend to compartmentalize what we do on Sunday apart from everything else 
that we do in our lives. But really, this is a place that we should come and say, hey, I'm going to get refreshed and recharged to continue to be worshiping in my community and worshiping in my work and worshiping throughout the week and showing Christ through everything. This should just be the recharging station, not the place that we only worship. When we see the story of the Good Samaritan, we see this compartmentalization come into play. The religious folks should have been the very first ones to help the man that was beaten and left for dead. But we watch their reactions and see that they took their religious duties as not important once they left the temple. The priest, what does he do? He just walks on by, not even paying attention to the man who's left for dead. But what was the priest's duty? Shouldn't he have cared for the man on the side of the road as he was supposed to care about their spiritual standing with God? He's the very first person that should have stopped and said, Hey, I see that you're suffering. Do you know God? But his mindset was, I only do this when I'm in the temple. Everything else doesn't matter. When I'm in the synagogue, that's what matters, worshiping God. Outside of it, it doesn't really matter. Then you have the Levite that comes by, and he at least looks at the man, but he kept, kept walking. The Levite was to help serve the duties of the priest, to care for the people. But just like the priest, he only took his duties to God serious when he was in the synagogue. But once outside, his duties uh, became irrelevant in his mind. How often do we do the same thing? Oh, I came to church, but the moment I leave, I'm going to do my own thing. The moment I leave, yes, I, I'm going to be praising the Lord and being around the people of the Lord here in the church, but immediately when I leave, I'm not going to care about anybody else's spiritual state because it, it, it's not important. We put our Sunday worship and our relationship with Christ in a different box than everyday life. We step into the box of our relationship, and in the morning before we start the day, we step out of it as soon as we leave our homes. This brings us to the second point of common grace. Number two, raise the bar of tolerance. Now, you might be thinking, well, tolerance. What's that mean? Well, obviously, we know the world has redefined what tolerance is, but we have to define what tolerance is. Here's tolerance. Tolerance is the ability or willingness to tolerate something, in particular the existence of opinions or behavior that one does not necessarily agree with. We have to have tolerance in that we can disagree. We can agree to disagree in things. If Alex was, his favorite color was blue, and he says, blue is the best color in the world. I love blue. It's the best color in the world. And I'm like, but I like green. I like lime green. And I think that lime green is better than blue. Tolerance would be saying, okay, well, if he wants to think that blue is the best color, let him think that blue is the best color. But I know that green's the best color. I can tolerate it. But what has the world done with the word tolerance? We live in a world today, though, where the word tolerance has been redefined as all values, all beliefs, all lifestyles, all truth claims are equal. Well, that can't be true. That can't be true. 
if you say there is no gravity, yet science tells us that there's gravity, just because you believe that's true doesn't mean that it's true. Your opinion in that matter is not equal to the fact that there's gravity. This is what happens though, right? Well, you know what? We think we should all coexist. Yet, have you ever noticed that when the people say coexist, that they're intolerable to Christians? Every other religion is fine. We don't mind any other religion, but when it comes to Christianity, oh no, you guys are just bigots. You guys just think that you know better than everybody else. Look, I, I could have fellowship with people who aren't Christians and tolerate their position and love and care about them and not sit there and be like, well, you're just all wrong, so there's no, no chance of talking to you. But that's exactly what happens to us many times as Christians. Now, mind you, I think maybe some of it's deserved because of the way that we've acted as Christians. That we've acted like we're better than everybody else. That we've looked down our nose at everybody else. As a, as a whole, I'm not saying we've done that individually, but as a religion, uh, as a group of people as a whole, that's what we've done. We've been just like those religious priests and the religious Levite. If you deny the new definition of tolerance, you're labeled intolerant and hateful, though. Back to Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. It greatly changes how we should be in our workplaces and really in our community. We hear much about diversity and sensitivity and tolerance of others in the workplace, but for the followers of Jesus, merely being tolerant of others who are different than us or rub us the wrong way puts the bar way too low. If everybody else is seeking tolerance, then we better raise our bar. Because we're just stooping down to the low of everybody else. What do I mean the, this changes things? Because of the neighborly love and compassion that common grace exhibits towards others. This is the high bar that we're to strive for in our daily work, in our lives. God doesn't call us to be merely tolerant of those we work with, but to roll up our sleeves and to demonstrate Christ's love, compassion, and common grace. There's a difference. You know, you, uh, we're going to look at this verse in just a minute, you know, where it says that uh, if it's possible, live at peace with all men. Some people think that means, well, that just means I ignore the people I disagree with. No. How does he want us to live with peace with all men? He wants us to roll up our sleeves, to demonstrate Christian love, compassion, and common grace to those people. Even the ones that we struggle to get along with. Don't settle for tolerating people. Decide that you will show the love of Christ to people and go out of your way to show them that love. Not just pass by the spiritually dead whose destination is hell. Look at them with compassion as the good Samaritan and do something to help them. Walk with them. Demonstrate the love of Christ to them. It may take time for them to accept the love and compassion, but they are worth pursuing for Christ. We have to be conscious of the Holy Spirit as He leads and directs us. Like I said, if, if, 
If God puts it on your heart to give money to a homeless person, give it. You know, a lot of times you'll hear people say, well, don't give that to them. They're not really homeless. They, they, they can get along. The people sitting at Walmart, they can get along. But you know what? What if God puts it on your heart to give? You better give. We had somebody that was complaining. Well, I don't know. This person might just be using me. I said, well, did God tell you to help that person? Well, yeah. I said, then nothing else matters. Give. Show that compassion. That's what God has called us to, is to love our neighbors as ourselves. Even if they're using you, it doesn't matter. If he's led it on your heart to give and to help this person, then give. Because maybe that person really needs to see the love of Christ. And maybe the way they're going to see it is by them using you. And you not complaining about it. And you loving them through it. The next thing is number three, let God be God. Let God be God. Our work can be a context where we are the recipients of ill treatment from others. And the temptation is for us to retaliate with any means necessary. How are we to respond when we face ill treatment? The Bible tells us to turn the other cheek. But again, this is something I feel like in our churches, we fail to teach this. We, we told people, well, if they're going to do that to you, just sue them. Get back at them. They shouldn't have treated you that way. You should treat them this way. We've gotten so far away from the Word of God. We've gotten so far away from the teaching of the Word of God. No wonder so many times people look at the church and they scoff at it. But you know what? There's nothing new under the sun. It's the very same thing that Paul was dealing with with the church at Corinth, with brothers suing brothers, with all sorts of things going on within the church and division going on within the church. And he's saying, no, we've got to stop this. But how do we do this? We've got to make sure that we're continually going to his word and preaching his word and pointing us back to the word. That's all he did in Corinth, did he not? He kept on pointing them back to God, pointing them back to God, pointing them back to God. Let God be God. Let God be God. Let him be the one that takes care of those things. But turning the other cheek doesn't mean it's wrong to see proper processes when we've been taken advantage of. What's the whole purpose of not uh, of turning the other cheek? It's that we don't become bitter against other people. Now, obviously, I, I, I would agree. If something bad in the workplace has happened, somebody has been hurt, uh, and it's altered, the, altered their life for good, yeah, I think that the person ought to have a settlement to help them. But the problem is, is a lot of times when people go through that, what do they do? They get bitter at the people that are part of the company. They get mad at the people that are part of the company. They don't think that they move fast enough in the part of the company. And then they start to ruin their testimony of who they believe Jesus is by the way that they act towards others. As Jesus' followers, we must guard our hearts against bitterness towards anyone and greet them with grace. The Bible is clear that as Christians, we are not to retaliate or take vengeance in our own hands. Romans 12, 17 through 21, recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. The idea there is to put wrath aside. That's the place for it. 
put that wrath aside. Why? For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. The Bible says, do good to those who despitefully use you and persecute you. Love your enemies. Jesus commanded this from us. Why? Because he understands that common grace is what's going to lead them to the understanding of saving grace. That common grace is the fertile soil where we begin to plant so that hopefully the seeds of, of, of saving grace will take root and people will come to know Christ as their Savior. Paul tells us not to pay back evil with evil, but rather let God be God. When we choose to live a life of common grace, it allows us to find contentment in our hearts that God's in charge and that he will settle any scores that need to be settled. Let God take care of those things. Number four, avoid the us versus them mentality. I think this is a real problem in churches. Yep. We have an us versus them mentality. This is where we tend to look down our nose at other people. This is where we have forgotten our past and what God saved us from and has given us the grace that we needed to have salvation and we look at others and cannot give the common grace that God gave us. We, so for, for too long, does the church have this mentality of us versus them? Absolutely. A Christian's life should be lived in such a way that it helps us avoid having a heart of bitterness. It's easy to have the us versus them mentality, especially when we feel that we've been uh, treated with ill will. But when we learn to live in common grace, we look for common ground and build bridges with people rather than walls of exclusion. This is one of the things Glenn and I have talked about several times. He's like, I I'm afraid that our church has become uh, an exclusive club for only certain people. Now, we understand the body of Christ is only going to be made up of who? Saved people, right? Those who have put their faith and trust in them. But when it comes to the church that's a local body, it's going to invite both saved and unsaved in. It's not an exclusive club. It's the idea that God has put his, his local church here to reach the community that we're in. And if we're in an exclusive club and say, well, you can only get in if you wear certain clothes. You can only uh, come in if you act a certain way. You can, only be a, uh, you can only come in if you don't do these things. What we do is we build walls of exclusiveness. But what we need to be doing in our community is building bridges of hope that connects us with people on a common level to point them to common grace and eventually point them to saving grace. As fellow sinner, sinners in need of the same saving grace that we've received, we're called to interact with others in a spirit of humility and have a teachable attitude rather than a pharisaical attitude of superiority of everyone else around us. And I've seen this happen, and I've done it myself in my own life, where I think, well, I'm just a better Christian than you. I just know better because I am a Christian. Christ never acted that way. He sat down and he ate with publicans and sinners. Now, he didn't participate in sin, but he sat down and he ate with them. He built bridges to let them see that he was the Son of God. 
Did he try to do it with the religious people? Yeah, but they had nothing to do with him. In order to avoid the us versus them mentality, we have to remember that people are not our real enemy. Who's our real enemy? Satan. When we can put that aside from how people might treat us and recognize that it's Satan that is the real enemy and not other people, it will help us to have a true common grace towards others. In Ephesians 6, Paul uh, addresses what we looked at when we covered um, the subject of work as a form of worship concerning us working for the audience of one. Right? That's, that's what we really should be doing. Everything that we do in this life, he said, uh, um, the first and great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. We're working for the audience of one. Our love for God is what matters the most because it's going to affect every other thing that we do in life. So when Paul is writing, he, he's, he's telling us, hey, work for the audience of one. And when he gets done writing about our workplaces, Paul turns to the believer's attention to what their adversary is and to proactively prepare for the expected opposition. Paul tells us, put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Ephesians 6.11 Your workplace is not a neutral zone. It's a battlefield. It's a battle zone. Every day the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of Christ are coming into conflict. Paul reminds us of this in 1 Corinthians 10.3-4 For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through the God of the pulling down of strongholds. Understand that we are in a spiritual battle. So the real enemy is not the people. It's Satan. It's the, the, the demonic powers. It's the uh, principalities and powers that are, are doing things uh, uh, um, for Satan, not for God. That is what our enemy is. It's that spiritual thing. One of our greatest spiritual weapons, though, in all of our life is intercessory prayer what does it mean to intercede for someone to speak on their behalf to speak for their good one of the best ways for us to avoid an us versus them mentality in our workplace is to pray for those that we work with pray for those that we struggle with have intercessory prayer why is it that we have a basket full of names up here people that need to know christ as their savior we're having intercessory prayer we're asking on their behalf what they would not ask for themselves because they don't know God. We are asking God reveal to them their need of salvation. What if we did that for every person that we disagree with or struggle with? If they don't know Christ or if they do know Christ, God, I'm asking on your behalf that they would mature in their, um, uh, in their uh, relationship with you as believers. Because, God, I really struggle with these things. And if we spend that time praying, what does it do? It helps us avoid that us versus them mentality. And then the last thing this, this afternoon. Number five, promote workplace justice. Promote workplace justice. When we embrace common grace for the common good, we actively promote justice and fairness in the workplace. In Colossians, Paul calls out those in authority to cultivate fairness. 
Colossians chapter 4 and verse number 1. Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. If God has placed you in a position of authority in your workplace, then he's gifted you with a high place of stewardship in order to provide a fair and safe working environment for all. See, the Bible speaks about subjects that maybe we didn't think it spoke about. It's even speaking about our workplaces. Make sure that whoever is working underneath you is treated fairly and equally. Uh, it, one thing that um, I really thought a lot about is, uh, you know, eventually if God allows us to bring somebody to come alongside and to help assist the church. I, I think back to where I was as a youth pastor and the things that I did. In, in my church in, in Georgia, they took really good care of me. But there were other places that I served that it wasn't so great. There was a lot of unfairness. There was a lot of things that went on that just made me feel like, wow, I'm just underappreciated. Nobody really cares about what I'm doing. And I determined all along that when God eventually gives us someone to work alongside of me, that I would treat them with fairness and equality. That I would think back to the struggles that I have, and I would have a real conversation when asked them, what is your expectation as you work underneath the church and you work underneath me, but also alongside of me. When God gives us people in our charge with those things, we have to understand that the Bible tells us that we're to treat them with justice and equality. We hear all the time of how many workplaces have unfair wages or unsafe work environments. As Christians, if we've been put in a place to lead and direct in our workplace, we should do everything we can to ensure that people are treated fairly, and we're doing all that we can to ensure work safety. When we steward well over responsibilities given to us in the workplace, we contribute to the common good and show the common grace to those we've been set to lead. And I can tell you as a person who owned a business for 17 years, the worst people to work for were Christians. Why? Oh, well, I'm a Christian and you're a Christian. You're a graphic designer. You should go ahead and just give me a discount. Looking for a handout all the time. As Christians, especially if we're wanting to do something with excellence, we ought to say, hey, listen, if, if I'm going to have... If I'm going to have somebody in our community do something for us as a church, I'm not going to ask them for a church discount. Now, do people give us church discounts? Yeah, it's wonderful. Those places that give it to us, hey, yeah, I, I'll ask them. When we put people up in the hotel, guess what? Oh, you're with the church? Yeah, I'm with the church. Okay, yeah, we got a discount for you. It's great. But, you know, if, if we were going to bring a sound engineer into a new building to come in and prepare us for a new sound system and speakers and take care of all those things for us, I, I wouldn't expect them to give us a discount just because we're a church. I would want to pay them for the service that they do because I know that they're going to do a job well done. The easiest people that I had to work with most of the time were the unsaved. Man, you do such a good job. They never asked for a discount. Now, would I have given churches discounts anyways? Yeah, because my heart was to help ministries. But so many times we'd have people that would just say, well, I deserve a discount. 
They had this idea of entitlement because they were a Christian. Our only entitlement that we have is to live by the grace of God, to love others, and the only rights that we have is the right to have no rights as Christians because we belong to Him. Whether your work is, uh, whether you're working or you're not working at this point in your life, the principles of connecting our Sunday worship with our Monday work are good for every Christian. They're not just focusing on our needs to show common grace and common good in the workplace, but to everyone that's around us. We ought to be showing common grace and common good to everyone. Our fellow believers, the unbelievers, the drug addicts, the drunks, the homeless, the rich, the poor. We ought to be living for the common good of every single person in our community and living with common grace towards every person that's a part of this community. So how will you take your Sunday worship and translate that in the week to follow? We've been looking at this for months now. I hope that it's been a help to you. I hope that you've learned something from it. I hope that it's changed your mindset of getting out of this compartmentalization and realizing that everything we do, both in the church and out of the church, should be pointing to God. He should be an act of worship in everything that we do. In everything. I'm looking forward to getting into our new series this coming week, though, and seeing how it even connects to what we even talked about today. When we know that we all have pasts, well, so did Jesus's women in his genealogy. And you know what's amazing? When we begin to look at the Bible in that way, and we look at the people of the Bible and say, hey, you know what? They're people just like us. It makes the Bible even more relevant to our lives because we realize we're not just reading some super Christians who had some supernatural ability to live for Jesus. No, that we all have the ability to live for Jesus. But it starts with us saying, God, I'm going to follow the command to love you and reflect the love that you've shown in my life right back to you. Because, God, I want to do everything that I do, not out of obligation or out of duty, but because I love you. We understand that, especially as married couples, right? Why do we do the things that we do for our spouses? Sometimes it might be out of obligation, but when we do it out of obligation, we find ourselves most miserable. But when we say, I'm doing this because I love you and I care about you, then even the hard things that you have to do aren't a chore. Even today, Renee was like, are you sure? Are you sure you want to drive me back home? I, re I really don't feel good. Anything for you, baby. Because I love you. It's not too much? No, it's not too much. It's just, it's just eight minutes down the road and eight minutes back. It's no big deal. Why? Because I love her. And I care for her. This is what God wants from us. Why should we come to church? Because we love him. Are there days that we're not going to feel like we're coming to church? Yeah. But don't, still don't come with a sense of, I have to. Say, I get to. I'm doing it because I love you, God. Yeah, I'm struggling. I'm hurting right now. But I love you. God, I, I'm going to give. It might be hard. It might be a little bit that I think that I need for something, but because I love you, I'm going to give because you, 
I, I, it's a joy to serve you. And I know that when I serve you, and when I love you like I'm supposed to, my needs are going to be supplied. Doesn't mean that we don't shake in our faith sometimes. But too many times, we go through the motions of being good Christian people. But we do it out of obligation rather than love. And when God sees that, he looks at our heart and says, what a waste of time. You're doing it just because you feel obligated to, not because you love me. That's what was happening in the church of Ephesus. When you come to Revelation, oh man, they made some good strong stands. They took strong stands against false religion. But they got to the place where they were taking strong stands and not showing common grace and not showing common good. And then God told them, I have something against you. I'm going to remove your candlestick if you don't change because you have lost and left your first love. See, when they became so focused on religious things, they lost the focus of why there was a church in the first place. And that was to live the love of Jesus, the love of God that was given to them in front of everybody else around them and showing the love of God and that common grace so that he could give them saving grace.